I love natural farming, and if you're here, I bet you do too. Just about all of my life is purchased. I start my day with purchased toothpaste, shave cream, and razor. I work on a computer I bought, on internet I subscribe to, and listen to music I pay a monthly fee to have access to. My lunch was bought mostly at the grocery, and I put my dishes in a dishwasher with soap someone else made. My car, my home, this microphone I'm talking into, nearly everything in my life is paid for, even the organic and holistic stuff. But my relationship with the plants is different. I actually spend very little on cultivation, and yet my plants are thriving. The longer I cultivate and the more I learn, the easier it is to grow, the less money I spend, and the less pest pressure and problems I have. For me, the beauty of natural farming is the more I slow down and learn about soil life and natural systems, the more I am rewarded with good cannabis and good food for nearly no money. Because of natural farming, my relationship with my plants is the healthiest relationship in my life. And maybe for you too. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire and I'm your host, Shango Los. Today, my guest is Joey Berger. Joey is a universally respected permacultural and natural farming educator and consultant in Humboldt, California. This is an epic resume. Check this out. Joey was certified in permaculture design in 1998 and was certified to teach permaculture in 2017. He started working in the cannabis industry at age 12 and grew his first solo garden at age 14. In 1996, Joey founded the seminal cannabis supply store, Trim Scene Solutions, the Emerald Triangle source for harvesting, processing, and extraction equipment in 2009. And honestly, that undersells Joey's importance in the California medical and export markets. Joey essentially provided the supplies to the heart of the West Coast cannabis producers exporting to the East. Joey founded and served as president of the Humboldt Growers Association in 2010, Humboldt's first medical cannabis growers association. He was also founding board member of the Emerald Growers Association in 2011, which then went on to become the CGA, the California Growers Association. Joey Berger licensed his Mendocino farm, the Mendo Hideout, in 2011 under Mendo's 931 program to grow legal medical cannabis. That same farm was raided just three years later in 2014 after ordinance was repealed from 99 plants back down to 25. He founded the Casual Crop Exchange, Humboldt's longest-running medical cannabis farmer's market, in 2016. And when that was shut down, he founded the Casual Sundays Education Series to share regenerative practices with the local community. In 2017, Joey Berger received the highly respected Dragonfly Earth Medicine Pure Certification for his farm in Mendocino, and he now inspects and certifies farms for Dragonfly in the southern Humboldt area. Joey Berger is presently permaculture educator at Heartwood Mountain Sanctuary and a judge for Emerald Cup. 
During the first set, we chat a bit about assessing your property and common regenerative improvements Joey sees on cannabis farms. During the second set, we focus solely on producing cultivation nutrients from wild plants already growing on your farm. And the third set is all about using plants already on your farm for natural pesticides and pest discouragements. Welcome to the show, Joey. Thanks for having me on, Shango. So great to have you here. So let's jump right into it. You know, I know a lot of what you do and where you pretty much start all of our conversations is assessing the property that we're talking about, right? Because, you know, your craft and like all of our craft is growing plants. It's very specific to the particular bioregion that we live in. And then, you know, the specific um, you know, plants and waterways and, you know, bioregion of our, our actual parcel. So, um, what I'd like you to do is let's start by going through the kinds of things that you look at when you first arrive at a property. Like help us see through your eyes the factors that are present on a property so that, you know, everybody who's listening can use those same eyes, either looking at their, their property that they own, or in the case of people who lives in, live in more of a suburban area, how they can look at like, you know, their local parks and such for where, where they might be wild crafting. Help, help us have your eyes. Sure. Well, usually this starts uh, with a phone call long before I come out to anyone's farm. Uh, someone contacts me, wants to have me, you know, look at their property, do some permaculture design work, or just look at it through, you know, through my, my years of cannabis and permaculture. Um, so over that phone call, we usually talk about, you know, who are you? What is your context? What is your project? Is this a, is this a recreational cannabis farm? Is this a traditional market uh, cannabis farm? Is this a business? Um, what is it that you're actually looking for? Um, you're going to hear me talk about context a lot today. Um, what is it that you want your lifestyle to be like? Uh, you know, are you are you are you a workaholic? Are you looking for a, a place where you can just raise your family and grow food? Um, a lot of times we'll talk on the phone way beforehand coming out to the farm. You know, what are the, what are the natural resources you have around there? I like to just get a little bit of a, a picture before I ever set foot on the ground. I like to look at maps, send me some topos, send me some aerial photos, send me your site plans from your licensing so that when I go out and finally get some boots on the ground, I have a good idea. You know, what neighborhood are you in? I might know some of your neighbors. I might know just from the area that you're in, what are some of the natural resources there? If you're out near the coast in Honeydew or Petrolia, I'm here in Southern Humboldt County. Um, you're, I know you're going to have horsetail on your property. I know that this time of year you're going to have bracken fern. I already have an idea based on you know, where you're at, what your exposure is, are you north face, are you south face, what kind of conditions I can expect to see once I get out there. And so once we get onto that property, believe me, I'm looking for plants on the drive out there. I'm looking for, you know, history of fires that have come through the area. Um, where are we? Are we down in a valley? Are we up high? Am I seeing, you know, what are the soils looking like as I'm driving out to your property? Get an idea. Are we down in Lake County and there's serpentine rock? Or are we up in uh, northern Humboldt where there's redwood trees, you know? So and we get onto the property, meet, meet with the clients. And some of the first things we like to identify are these different sectors. Where is your exposure? Are we on a south-facing property that gets a lot of <clears throat> gets a lot of sun, gets really good southern and western exposure? Are we on a north-facing property that gets very little light? Um, what's our elevation? Where is the water on this property? Uh, 
Uh, where are the fire threats coming from on this property? You know, most of Humboldt County is very mountainous and fire tends to travel uphill. So it's usually pretty easy to identify where are the fire threats going to come from on a property. You know, if you're in your house, where's that fire? What direction is that fire going to be coming from? Um, where are the ingresses and egresses from that property? And will you be able to exit it if there is a fire coming your way? Uh, some of these other sectors are the wind sectors, you know, where are your winds blowing in from, you know, winds can be very damaging to soils and to plants, they really dry out soils, um, they make it a lot harder for your plant to just be healthy and do its natural processes. So identifying these sectors, um, we use a lot of, uh, we use some skills in permaculture called zoning. These are some principles that we use where we can lay a farm out or a property out in zones, zones one through five, with zone, zone ones being the zones that you visit the most every day. These are going to be the areas right outside your front door where you're going to want your little, house, your little veggie garden for the house and your little bit of herbs and your chicken coop. And zone five is going to be the very far reaches of your property. It might be a wood lot or it might be an area that you go just to gather, you know, gather some leaf mold out of the forest a few times a year. So we'll, we'll look at a property and we'll look at, you know, what are the, uh, what does your day to day look like? You don't want to put your garden that you're going to be visiting every day on the far end of your farm. You want to put that close to the house. So we use some of these permaculture design principles and, uh, they really help with that process and, and, and really just identifying those sectors. Where are the threats? Where are the assets? How do we capture the energy that's hitting your farm? and cycle it as many times before it leaves your farm. That energy could be the sunshine hitting it, meaning we want to have as many levels of plants. We want to have tall trees that are capturing that sun at a tall height. We want to have medium-sized plants and ground covers that we're capturing that sunshine at every height before it leaves the property. We want to capture it with solar panels. We want to capture it with uh, passive solar design on our homes so it can heat them during the winter. Um, we want to capture the rainwater as it's falling and hitting the ground. That's energy. We want to cycle that through our property as many times before it leaves. We want to run it through swales that are going to spread the water out and sink it into the ground. And our hugel beds are going to capture it and hold that water like banks. Um, and those plants, you know, we want to cycle that water through as many plants before it leaves our farm. That's energy. And the minute it leaves your farm, it's gone. So how do we how do we identify all the all that energy that's hitting your property and, and make the most use of it? You know, one of the big things we say in permaculture is what's the biggest change we can make for the smallest uh, effort? So we really go out to these farms. We try to identify, you know, what is what are what are some of the few biggest issues you're dealing with? And we might be able to, you know, if we can just fix those couple little things that could have a huge impact on your life or on the health of your farm or on the quality of your product. And oftentimes out here, those, those little things, they're big things, they're little things, but oftentimes it's powdery mildew or it's certain types of pests, uh, big, big aphid issue the last few years. The leaf hoppers was a big issue I saw the last couple of years. So yeah, we just, you know, it's really about the farmer's context. What are we walking into? What, what are your goals that you're trying to accomplish? And how can we use, uh, these design principles and your available resources to meet those? Let's get into the farmer's head for a second. So, so I can see how, and actually, I gotta admit, I'm kind of surprised at how, um, systemic, um, 
the approach is right. I can, I can almost feel the permaculture design course that, that, that that these ideas are from because, you know, so often when people come to the property, they're focused more on how the property feels to them. Right. And the, the energetics of the property. And, and I'm, you know, obviously that is important, but to, but to listen to you break it down into like the types of zones, I'm, I'm imagining more like, overlaid you know different types of maps of what's happening at different levels of the property and um and how you can improve each one of those different categories so so getting into the farmer's head for a moment um when you go to these properties what are like let, let's let's just pick three um what are three of the common uh, let's say either um, misconceptions or things that farmers miss um, that can be most beneficial um, to them that you see that are very common. Because if they're if they're common to you, chances are a lot of folks that are listening will get value from them as well. Well, yeah. Let's let's start with winter time. We see people making these huge burn piles and just burning everything, burning their stalks, burning their plant waste, burning their tree trimmings. Where you know we're in fire country here. We had the largest uh, fire in California history, about four miles from my house last year. Um, we're we're in a major drought right now. We're going to have an even worse fire year this year. So we all need to be doing uh, fire prevention work over the winter, creating these defensible spaces. They call them clearing out around our buildings, clearing on the downhill sides of all our buildings, all our a- a- entrances and exits to the property. And so it's great. We want people clearing these fire ladders. These are the lower dead branches on trees, clearing out the clearing out the dry material. But when we just burn those, those are valuable resources. Those are resources on your property. When we burn them, we're releasing CO2 into the atmosphere. It's adding to the hole in the ozone layer. There are many things that we could do with our cannabis stalks, with our plant, with our ganja waste, with our tree thinnings, with our... Um, with these small firs that we tend to thin out here in our oak woodlands. Um, when we stockpile and process these wastes, we turn them into resources. So let's talk about uh, your cannabis waste. Let's talk about your ganja stalks. Those can be chipped. Those can be returned to your soil. They can be composted. They can be used as mulch. Um, Dry, dry leaf as well can be just mulched, compost right back into the garden, fed to your worms, um, put into a hugel culture bed. Uh, those are valuable materials. I don't ever want to see anybody burning their ganja stalks again. That one breaks my heart. Yeah, it's fun. We all love sitting around the campfire in the winter. It's great. But let's not burn our cannabis waste. Those are nutrients that we took from the soil, from our soil. We need to return them to the soil. Every time we, we harvest something and remove it from our property, that, that's, that's fertility we just removed. So we got to start thinking about how do we return that back to the soil? As far as our forest thinnings, you know, a lot of those young firs can be processed and used as poles. We can use those as junk pole, junk pole fencing as very simple wooden fences that we can build out of those four to eight inch uh, diameter um, straight poles, fir, dug fir poles. Um, your, your thinnings out of the woods can be chipped, used, um, used to build soil, used in your compost, used as mulch. I also want to talk about ramial wood chip. These are the branches from the the smaller deciduous trees. You want to harvest these in uh, 
in the winter time and in, in the springtime. These are the trees, your deciduous trees that lose their leaves in the, in the winter time. These are your fruit trees, these are your oaks, these are your madrones uh, and your maples. These are some of the, the deciduous trees around our parts. Um, you want to you use the branches that are under three inches in diameter, the smaller, thinner branches that have some bend to them. These are high in lignin. Lignin is what makes uh, branches flexible. Um, when, when these branches get older, they get high in tannins. Tannins are what's in hardwood, makes the wood hard, makes it hard to bend. So when you chip these smaller ramial uh, wood, these smaller branches, we use our fruit tree thinnings and we use these smaller branches. When you make a wood chip from this ramial wood, it's a very uh, low carbon to nitrogen ratio wood chip. And that means it's going to break down quickly. Your normal hardwood wood chip high in tannins takes a long time to break down. You bury it, it's going to take a couple of years. This ramial wood chip, because it's smaller pieces, it's high in the lignin, uh, microbes love to break this stuff down. You want to use this as a, as a, um, essentially a top dressing. You want to use it as a mulch. And if you can, mix it into the top one inch layer of your soil. And when it gets some contact with the soil, the microbes move into it, start breaking it down. It's not going to absorb and lock up a bunch of nitrogen like your normal wood chip if you were to mulch with it. So ramial wood chip is something we should all be making all winter long, building fertility. Uh, another good use for that wood waste is biochar. We should all be making biochar all winter long and um, using all these wood resources. So yeah, big pet peeve of mine is seeing people burning their fertility, burning their uh, wood resources. Let's please put an end to that. Right on. What's, it, what's another one? Another big one I see, um, you know, we've got snakes out here and we have fires. So we all do a lot of weed whipping out here. The grass grows up real tall in the spring. It's beautiful and green. And then it dies and you're left with this waist high grass that is a real fire threat. And it really hides a lot of the snakes. We got rattlesnakes around here. I had a client uh, last month whose father got bit last year by a rattlesnake. So it, it does happen. Um, but I'm going to put in a little plea here to not weed whip down to the ground all around your garden. I'm going to talk to you right now about something we call beetle banks. And beetles are some of the unsung heroes of your garden. Beetles go in and they break down manures. They're, incre they're incredible decomposers. So they go in and, and they break down your soil. They, they break down the, um, the compost and break down the manures. And... Where they like to hang out is in the tall grass. They go in there and hide in the tall, shady grass during the daytime to hide from birds and to hide from other predators. And when we weed whip down to the bare soil all around our gardens and we don't leave one little patch of grass standing, we have just taken out a lot of habitat. And so we have to find a balance between making our properties fire safe and getting that dead grass down where it's important and leaving as much of these undisturbed areas as possible. So I'm doing a lot of this in my garden this year is leaving big strips un unweed whipped right now. And that means just native grasses and bunch grasses that are three, four feet tall. And they're a shady habitat for these bugs and snakes and all kinds of insects to hide out during the day, during the hot part of the day when they're easy prey. And, uh, you know, you want to have a diverse garden. Diversity is strength. 
uh, diversity is health. When you go into your garden, you should see every bug, every insect. That means an aphid and a spider mite. That means it's a healthy, a healthy balanced system. That means there's predators there keeping them in check. If I walk into a farm and I don't see any bugs, I get worried. I know people have been spraying or there's just not enough diversity there. There's nothing there that anybody wants to live on. And that's going to that's gonna lead to pest pressures and pathogen pressures. You know, when people, when people weed whip their entire property, um, it's, it sometimes reminds me and is kind of akin to lawns, right? Um, yeah. and, and I understand why people have gotten more aggressive around about, you know, weed whipping their properties simply because they don't want their properties to burn, right? People are like, okay, I want to have there be less fuel around my house. And, and by all means, you know, around your house, you want to make sure that you've, you know, you, you've got things cleared. But it doesn't mean that you necessarily need to clear, you know, every square foot of, of your entire parcel. You know, there's, there's, there are gradations here. And I think that it's important to understand that it's not all or nothing. Yeah. And you don't need a lot of these. I'm not saying leave the whole hillside untouched. I'm saying leave a four foot wide by 20 foot long strip of native grass in the middle of your garden or on the edge of your garden or on the uphill side where it's not going to be a fire threat. And, uh, I and see. Water. You're saying more like make islands. Make for, islands. These beetles it. will travel a hundred feet in every direction. So make these islands around your garden and put a water source there. Put a little pond there. If you've got drip emitters, put a saucer under a few of those throughout your garden. You're going to get a lot more wildlife. You're going to get a lot more snakes that are going to be eating your rodents. A lot of times when we get rodent damage here, they're looking for water. They're chewing the base of your stems and, and, and extracting moisture. And I find that when I leave out more water around my garden, they leave my cash crops alone. Mm. So what's, a, what's another thing that you, you see commonly for this third one? What's something common that you see that, that uh, you know, it's kind of a universal thing that folks do wrong? Well, a lot of the pest pressures we get are just because of, let's talk poor airflow and, and monocropping and uh Unfortunately, we've got an issue here in Humboldt County for the licensed growers where they charge them for their square footage of their pathways in between their cultivation areas. So it really encourages the farmers to pack everything in as densely as possible. And it leads to a lack of airflow, an increase in uh, pest and, um, and, and fungus pressures. And I'm specifically talking about powdery mildew has just gotten worse and worse and worse here. And yeah, when you don't have good airflow and you're not taking the time to go in and clean out the insides of your plants and the bottoms of your plants and certain strains, you've really got to clean them out because they're just too leafy. Um, yeah, powdery mildew and, and, and a lot of that just has to do with a lot of times people are in poor greenhouses without adequate airflow. Um, just being in the, in, in the correct structure or, or being in the, in the correct outdoors, you know, people just kind of, stack the deck against themselves when you go into a greenhouse that doesn't have adequate airflow and you've got a monocrop in there and uh, you've got a strain that <laughs> isn't used to these conditions and you're growing it near the coast. I mean, you're just creating a perfect storm for pathogens to move right in and just run rampant all over your crop. So to the, to the best of your ability, um, you know, spread out your plants just, you know, across the entire property, whether they're your ornamentals or they're your cash crop or whether or not it's your food garden, 
you know, um, don't don't be shy about maximizing your space by spreading out. Give everybody a room to breathe. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's um, let's segue a little bit over to uh, water. You know, we talked a lot about the path of water and the importance of of you know uh, capturing and sequestering water. Several episodes back, when we talked with uh, Nicholas from uh, Green Source Gardens, right, and and we talked with him a lot about um, you know what to do in the off season to prepare your property for for the following summer, and um and and one of the interesting things that you just said to me was you're like okay. You know, obviously we need to sequester as much water as we can on our property as it flows through the property. But then, um, I, I, I forget exactly the word you use, but you suggested that you want to cycle it back around. And, you know, I really thought that water, you know, essentially travels one direction through the property, usually uphill, downhill. And you want to try to grab and, and cause as much of that water to sit down as possible along its one-way path but but the however you built your sentence it kind of suggested to me that you're seeing you know some way to to circle the water back onto your property a second time and so i'm just kind of fishing here um you know what 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 are these techniques that you might be talking about where we can not only just capture the water as it goes by but maybe bring it back well certainly it's more about capturing it and using it as many times as we can before it would leave the property or, or go somewhere like underground or we can't use it as easily. Um, you know, in permaculture, one of the principles is design from patterns to details. And, and, and permaculture's whole philosophy is around uh, the, the philosophy that nature knows best and that when we mimic these patterns that we see in nature, we can build resilient systems that are going to stand the test of time and, and function without our input. So water flows downhill. We know this. This is a big pattern in nature. <laughs> you know, This is why you don't want to put your water storage at the bottom of your hill. You want the water storage at the top of your hill. This is why you want all your water catchment at the top of the hill. So... Things like swales, things like hoogles, you know, a swale is essentially a, a long ditch on contour. It runs level across the landscape, perfectly level. Water is going to hit that, hit that in the rainy season, hit your hill or just come flowing off a road. It's going to flow into that swale, which is essentially just a ditch and get slowed down. If it doesn't hit that swale, it's just coursing down your, your property probably going into a ditch, probably picking up speed, taking a lot of topsoil with it and pushing it right down into your creek as quick as it can. So what we want to do is is capture that water and slow it down so that it's going to sink into our into our um, into our water table and recharge our our stores for our wells, our groundwater stores. So it hits that water, it it spreads out and then we want to have overflows at the ends of those so that it's going to overflow in and run downhill into the next swale system or into the next set of hugel beds that are on contour. And by doing this, we can really slow this water down and we can capture it as many times before it leaves the property. We want to have diverse plantings on all those swales. And ideally, we want to stack functions and get as many uses out of each one of these swales or plantings as possible. So ideally, we put, you know, ideally when we went out there, we identified here's a sector that we want to generate some privacy. The neighbors drive by, it's a dirt road, it's a lot of dust. There's, they can see my greenhouse. So I need some privacy. Um, 
We're going to build that swale so it catches the water coming off, coming off of that road. And we're going to plant our privacy fence along there and our shade fence. And maybe that's also heavy winds coming through there. We're going to do an, an intense planting that's going to break up the wind. We're going to try to stack as many functions as we can into that one planting. And we're not going to just use trees that are just going to be blocking the wind and the dust. We're going to also do fruit trees so we can get another yield. We can stack another function out of these out of these uh, these elements. And we're not just going to grow a fruit tree. We're going to grow a vine growing up that tr fruit tree. That fruit tree is also serving purpose as a trellis. So we're just every element that we place, we want to try to stack as many functions as possible because this is once again mimicking nature. This isn't something I came up with. This is what happens when you go and walk in, a, in the forest. You see trees with vines growing up them. You don't see uh, a trellis in the forest. <laughs> so, yeah, how many times can we capture that water? And cycle it, cycle it, cycle it before it just sinks down into our into our groundwater systems. Right on. So, you know, <clears throat> I know that with your expertise in permaculture design, we could actually do an entire show easily on how to design a property, you know, when you before you buy it or when you buy it. Um, but that's not the nature of the show today. Today, we're going to be talking more during the second and the third sets about wild crafting nutrition and, and discouraging pests with your local plants. But, you know, the important thing for me for this first section was to, um, you know, kind of pull from you the, like I was saying earlier, your, your eyes and how you're seeing the property and, and pull out some general things that just about everybody can use. And I would think that there's a lot of folks like me who are hearing these, these permaculture ideas and going, you know, damn, I wish I would have known this before I set up everything I already have set up. Right. And because, you know, very, very, it's, it's so much easier to design and build um, a parcel before you've moved all your crap onto it. Right. And so, before we go to commercial, I'd like to have you um, speak to this idea of, I don't know, either the challenges or even the hopelessness that a farmer may have with, gosh, I've already moved on to my property. I think it should be designed an entirely different way now that they've done some permaculture education and research. And gosh, they feel frustrated because you know, they have to plant with the property that they have today, and it's not at all how they would have designed it. So when you're, you know, when you're talking with farmers who are feeling challenged with where they're at today versus where they want to go, what kind of stuff do you say to them to give them heart? Yeah, well... Certainly the last few years around here have been really disheartening for people as they've transitioned into the recreational market, you know. Um, it's just taken such a financial and emotional toll, and uh, not just on the farmers, but on the whole community. And so, you know, these farmers having their farm and their homestead was a, a dream come true for a lot of these guys. A lot of them worked for decades to get this and build this, and and these last couple of years of regulation have just taken the wind out of their sails. It's become a, a job and a burden and it's scary and it's a lot more work than it used to be. And so to get to come out to folks property and teach them a few new skills and a few new ways to look at their property differently and look at their plants and recognize that there are all these resources readily available to them. And, um, 
once you, you know, once you get somebody a little more excited about their property and, you know, the light returns to their eyes, the little sparkle comes back and they start realizing, oh my God, I, you know, I'm, I'm spending all this money on this fertilizer and all this money on this pesticide. And, you know, learning a few of these, a few of these techniques could really put some dollars back in the pocket. And, and, and it just gets people looking at their property with a whole new set of eyes and a whole new, uh, you know, a whole new enthusiasm. And it's been really fulfilling and, and, um, you know, I'm really just happy to see people in the Emerald Triangle embracing regenerative practices, knowing that this needs to be part of our brand. We've always been known for the best cannabis in the world. Well, now we can prove that we're using the, the cleanest and most respectful to the planet uh, cultivation practices possible. So I, I feel like people in this community's product, as much as it's always been on the top shelf, are really going above and beyond in developing these regenerative practices. And I'm just really happy to see uh, see this renaissance that we're that we're witnessing right now. Let's dig a little. Let's do, let's dig one more question into the psychological part, right? Because for a lot of folks, you're right. Um, you know, legalization has been um, a drag for most of us, and for for many of us, you know, we're. we're it's been, you know, family tradition and, and the heritage behind it, the cultural connections we're losing as well. And also there is the idea that, okay, they are, you know, we are getting more regenerative minded. We are learning these new techniques. We are learning ways that we can use local plants and save money on inputs. And oh my gosh, it takes a lot of work to do that from where I'm at today. And um, I'm assuming that that you've got, you know, some kind of, you know, prepared philosophy to tell, you know, farmers about, you know, you know, some some version of baby steps and, and small things, uh, you know, start with small things. But what do you do when they feel overwhelmed? Because you're right. You know, there there is something about regenerative that is becoming stronger in the market that people want to buy it. But that doesn't really get people over the fact that, yeah, if I do all of this other new work to make my farm more regenerative, I can save more money and it's a, a you know marketing advantage, but it's also more work. And, and, and I'm sure that there are others like me who feel frustrated about, well, I already have to take care of the garden and the property as it is. And I want to make all these changes and I could do that as a full-time job for the next year. How do you, um, you know, how do you encourage balance and to take these additional steps for farmers who, like we've already established, are feeling pretty beat up right now? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I absolutely discourage people from trying to bite off more than they can chew. I, I, you know, compliance alone on a farm is a full-time job for a lot of these folks that, you know, farming was their full-time job and now they have to be the lawyer and the consultant and the water expert. Um, so I go onto these licensed farms and I, and I teach people these practices and I, I tell them, let's start small this year. Let's, let's talk about converting 10 or 15% of your farm. Let's build one hoogle and dump out one row of these smart pots, you know, cause yeah, building a hoogle is a lot more work than getting a smart pot and filling it up with soil. It just is. But it's also, you're going to build this thing one time and you're building fertility that's going to, you know, if we build it correctly, that could last the next 20 to 50 years. Your grandkids could be pulling potatoes out of that same bed. And that ain't going to happen with your smart pot. 
So I just encourage people take it slow because it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. You know, we all did this up here for, you know, 30 years and, and had really good success, but scaling up, going from a quarter acre to an acre or going from a half acre to two or three, like a lot of people here have done has been a difficult process. All the problems we had before we have them on a much larger scale now. And, um, so I just encourage people, let's start small. I want them to prove it to themselves that it works. But I also want them to actually follow the protocols. There are some traditional ways to make these. There are some protocols to follow that that will you know give you a better chance of success. I don't I don't want to see people half-assing it and then they say, oh, it didn't work, and I'm going to go back to the old ways. You know, it, it does take some effort. It's not as easy as just throwing some plant in in a bucket with some water, as everybody thinks. <laughs> it almost is, but it's there's a couple more important things. Um, so I hope people will learn some of the basics uh, of some of these different modalities before they just go all wild west and yeah, do something bad for their property or, <laughs> or just waste a lot of time and effort and go back to the old ways. Yeah. The wasting of the time seems to be the hardest, hardest resource to preserve. So, all right, cool. So thank you, Joey. So, so when we come back after the commercial break, we're going to talk specifically about wild crafting, uh, nutritive plants for your property so that you can, uh, save money on the, your inputs. You are listening to Shaping Fire. And my guest today is regenerative cannabis consultant, Joey Berger. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new living soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynomyco endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the other popular brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. Dynomyco is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. Dynomyco is now available at grow shops and on Amazon in the United States. I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of the mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynomyco.com and use the store locator to find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O.com. Shaping Fire listeners can get 10% off any size of Dynomyco on Amazon or Dynomyco.com by using the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynomyco to maximize your plant's potential. Dynomyco Endomycorrhizal Inoculant. 
If you're an autoflowering cannabis enthusiast, this event's for you. Announcing the 2021 Autoflower Cup, August 6th, 7th, and 8th in Lillooup, Washington, just outside of Seattle. Presented by Camp Ruderalis, this gathering has something for everyone. There's the Autoflower Cup competition, of course, but it's so much more than that. There'll be a Stunden Glass Hookah Lounge, a pop-up Magical Butter Chocolate Shop, and Waterfront Marketplace with an array of vendors. There will be an old-school autoflower seed swap, joint rolling competition, cannabis cooking demos, solventless squishing demos, and late-night documentary screenings of both dosed and fantastic fungi. The food will be lit, too, including Chef Sebastian Carosi's award-winning classics like elk chili, Kobe beef kimchi dogs, oyster po'boys, and razor clam chowder. Enjoy the campfire chili and oyster chowder cook-off, wild oyster harvesting, mushroom foraging, and s'mores around the campfires each night. Each day there, Dan Jimmy of Mandalorian will teach about autoflowers, and there will be presentations on closet cultivation and hunting for psilocybin mushrooms. The competition is open to everyone, commercial and home growers. There is a category for photo period plants too, so check out the autoflowercup2021.com for those details. Clearly, there will be plenty of cannabis around, but due to state law, it won't be supplied by the event. But there will be easy public toking, which is why this is a strictly over-21 event. You can camp, rent a cabin, or stay at a local Airbnb. Glamping and RV packages are available too. I'm happy to say that Shaping Fire is a sponsor of the event, and I'll be there too. I look forward to connecting with other autoflower fans like me. So get all the details at theautoflowercup2021.com and follow the Instagram at theautoflowercup2021. And I'll see you in August at Autoflower Cup when we bring the Autoflower family together to celebrate. There is no doubt that autoflowering cannabis plants have finally come into their own. And Night Owl Seeds works tirelessly, bringing you autoflower genetics that are reliable, thriving, and with extraordinary terpene profiles. Night Owl Seeds is an industry leader because of the focus work of their founder, Daz. Daz is passionate about the cannabis plant and pushing what autoflowers can do, and cultivators know that these efforts show through in his seeds. And Night Owl Seeds really are extraordinary. Just take a look at the thousands of photos by fans on Instagram. The proof is there and obvious. Terpenes are complex and rich. Plants have vigor. If you are a fan of Mephisto genetics like I am, you'll likely also love Night Owl Seeds. Night Owl founder Daz worked with Mitch Mephisto to build the Mephisto brand for years, including breeding Mephisto's much-loved Sour Stomper and Cosmic Queen cultivars. I'm growing both Night Owl and Mephisto this year because I want the best. And Night Owl Seeds knows how to cultivate community, too. Daz puts out great stickers, exclusive packaging for limited runs, and desirable freebies. He really draws you in if you love creative branding. Night Owl even has the Secret Owl Society Text Club. Just text the word Night Owl, one word, to 760-670-3130 for early announcements and exclusive opportunities. Of course, you can see lots of photos and find out about upcoming drops by following the Night Owl Seeds Instagram, too, at daz.nightowl. That's D-A-Z dot Night Owl. You can get your packs of Night Owl Seeds at several distributors, including DC Seed Exchange, Insane Seeds, and Hembra Genetics. That's Night Owl Seeds. There's a difference because we're different. 
Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is regenerative cannabis consultant, Joey Berger. So before the break, we were talking a lot about how to look at your own property, mostly just kind of like get folks' mental eyes into the idea of seeing their entire property as this, this living, functioning, dancing thing, um, because it's it's from our relationship with it that we create you know, the, the safety of home and the food that we eat, and, and hopefully the cash crops that we offer to others so that our family can survive. But so often, um, we then buy inputs from off the property that could be easily replaced with inputs, uh, which might actually be plants that are causing us problems on the property, which we could actually turn into to healthy inputs. So why don't you talk us through, um, you know, the kinds of plants that you're looking for and, and how to see the plants on your property, uh, that could be used for, um, as, as nutritive inputs that could replace other stuff that we're buying and, and bringing to the property. Yeah, thanks, Shango. I want to bounce back one second um, to something you said when we came back from the break. You yeah. introduced me and you called me Regenerative Cannabis Consultant, which I appreciate that. That title helps helps let people know that I am open for business. But I want to talk to people for a minute about these titles we give ourselves and how we can get wrapped up in them and how we can feel insecure about sharing the knowledge that we have. You know, am I good enough to be called a regenerative cannabis consultant and share this knowledge? Uh, you know, we, we call ourselves a cannabis grower or a permaculture designer or whatever these different terms are that, you know, identifies as this singular. And I want people to think of themselves as the activist. I'm not a I'm not a, a, a regenerative cannabis consultant. I'm an activist for regenerative cannabis. I'm an activist for permaculture. I know you are an activist for for cannabis. Um, when we think of ourselves as the activist, we are now working for a higher power, much bigger than ourselves, a cause much bigger than our own, than the individual. When we are think of the activists, you know, pass me the bullhorn, pass me that sign. I'm not taking shit from anybody. I believe passionately in what I'm doing, and I'm going to yell it from the mountaintops. Um, so I hope you all will uh, join me in thinking of yourselves as activists for this plant, activists for this planet, activists for these regenerative practices, and not get wrapped up in the I'm a, I'm a pot grower, I'm a cannabis farmer, I'm a permaculturist, whatever it is. You're activists, and I've seen the passion in this community and, and the way we've all had to fight every step of the way to get this plant and this industry to where it is, and, and the fight's not over yet. So don't think of yourself as the grower. Think of yourself as the activist for all growers. And um, yeah, I just want to send a lot of love out there to everyone who's just been carrying this torch for a long time and going to jail and fighting the good fight, and it, it's far from over, but... I um, just want to put that in everyone's head that y'all are activists and I, I respect you. I respect like that. So many of you. I, that is so well said, Joey. You know, and, and hearing you say it, you know, it really changes how people ground themselves, right? If they ground themselves as, <coughs> excuse me, as a cultivator or whatever. Um, they're grounding themselves in how they make money versus as an activist, we're growing, we're, we're identifying our, identifying ourselves as, um, we are defenders and growers of natural systems, right? Which is, you know, more amorphous than what I sell, but it's probably way healthier overall and a much better way to identify oneself. 
Yeah, activate activists don't have time for haters or trolls. You know, we believe in this mission. It's much bigger than us, and uh, and we we make no 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 excuses for it. So, right on. So, what are these plants that are on our property that we can use in very simple ways to feed our plants and replace some of the stuff that we normally buy? Sure. Well, you know, I practice uh, a, a, a few different types of cultivation in my toolbox, some Korean natural farming techniques and some Jadom techniques, which is a, a little evolution of Korean natural farming. Um, so I came onto a new farm here last year, a new property, and I came here in March and we start looking around. What are, what are the things that are starting to grow early in the year like that? You know, in March and April here, um, some of the first things to start vegging are the blackberries. You know, people here consider the blackberry invasive. It grows on just about every piece of property in Humboldt County. Um, it's hard to pull out. It's pokey. It's scratchy. But it's incredible habitat for birds. It provides delicious berries. Um, and it's an incredible fertilizer. Those fast-growing green shoots in the springtime are full of growth hormones. They're full of nitrogen. So one of the very first ferments I make in the springtime is that blackberry ferment. Um, some of the next plants to come along are going to be your nettles, your stinging nettle and your dead nettle seem to show up in April. Um, I just did a big horsetail harvest, uh, over the weekend that seems to pop up in May. Horsetail is high in silica, good for building cellular wall strength, uh, great for, uh, treating powdery mildew. I make a foliar feed. I also make a, a, a pesticide with it. That's also good for, uh, powdery mildew prevention. And uh, right now we've got the St. John's wort blooming, which I also use to make a pesticide. So it's really looking at, you know, what's available right now, getting in touch with these plants. What do you have in abundance? If you only have a little bit of something, don't harvest it. I, if we go into these areas, I want to make sure it doesn't look like I was even in there harvesting. I'll never harvest more than 25% of every, anything. If I'm taking some materials out of the woods, like leaf mold or some some leaves or anything, I bring something back into the woods to replace it. Some wood chips or some some straw or some some soil or some compost. Uh, you know, we don't want to encourage people to just go out to the woods and just start harvesting and and you know extracting these resources. We need to do it in a way that's actually beneficial. You know, I talked before about the permaculture principle of stacking functions. So we don't just go and cut these plants willy nilly. You know, I probably, if I've got a, a bed in my garden that's overgrown with blackberry, well, those are the blackberries I'm going to use to, uh, to make this ferment. We had a class here on Friday. We had about 40 people here. We did a little natural farming class on our farm. And I made this blackberry ferment and I took them over to where the blackberries were all growing into the pathway. And if you walk by them, they'd reach out and they scratch you. And those were the branches that we made the ferment out of. We stacked our functions. Instead of just clearing those and cutting them and throwing them somewhere, we made a ferment out of them. So, you know, you want to avoid any poisonous plants. You don't want to use blackberry, you know, I mean, uh, poison oak. Better you feed that to your goat. But, um, for the most part, there are plants all around you that you can harvest on the sides of the roads, in the forests. Um, I am just constantly amazed. Just I like to just, you know, at some point get present to where I'm standing outside and just start looking around. 
for most class. folks, it sounds like the first place they should start is uh, by making an inventory, you know, go walk their property at the beginning of April or even a little earlier if the if the, if if where you live the snow recedes uh, sooner than that and then make an inventory and start by researching those plants because a lot of the plants that we think of as invasives like the blackberry um or or some of the things that are just like uh you know a challenging plant that takes over like the horsetail um you know whatever the plant is where you live that is spreading so much at the beginning of the season it is trying to express um you know abundant life energy in in for itself and that's those are the parts of the plant that we use for our various concoctions so i would you know you gave us examples based on where you live but it sounds like no matter where the person lives in the country first things first is to make a list of all the plants that you've got too much of in the spring so that you can strategize how to turn those into nutrients yeah, you want to get to know your plant allies in your in your biome. And I would recommend people get a book on edibles, foraging wild edibles, because a lot of these plants we think of as weeds are edible certain times of the year or in how you prepare them. And I would also recommend people get a book on harvesting wild medicinals, because a lot of these same plants have incredible medicinal and healing effects. Um, this St. John's wort we harvested over the weekend, I use it for pesticide, but uh, we we're also harvesting it to make tinctures out of. Um, so yeah, get to know the plants in your biome, in your community, in your neighborhood. Um, there might, you, know, you might not have that much diversity on your property, but I bet within a five-mile radius, there are lots of plants. So get out there and, and introduce yourself and get to know them. <laughs> so, you know, once we've identified these plants that are on our property in abundance, um, and we have, <coughs> sorry about that. Um, once we have identified them and we have, um, you know, we know what we want from them, these nutrients are kind of like locked in there, right? And I know that there are both aerated techniques to coax these uh, nutrients out. And there are also unaerated techniques um, that can coax these out. And as a matter of fact, the first time I ever heard about natural farming was from a buddy of mine on the island. I went over to his house and he had these, these five, five gallon buckets and they were all you know, they all had subtle bubbles covering them as they were there in the hot sun. And it just looked like sludgy to my inexperienced eyes, you know, here 10 years ago now. And I'm all like, you know, like, dude, your bubbler's broken, you know? And, and he's like, no, he's like, no, man, I know what I'm doing. And I'm like, all right. And I just like moved on. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that I realized that not everything needs a bubbler. But I got to tell you, um, you know, in my head, they generally do. So will you walk us through um, the different um, ways in which to bring the nutrition out of these plants so that we can use them. Sure. Well, I prefer, I, I tend to use uh, anaerobic ferments. These are uh, your non-aerated ferments. Um, I like to use the microbes that are on the leaf mold in the forest to break down my plants, to extract the nutrients, to make them plant available. And so I do this by going into the forest, into the deep, you know, untouched areas of the forest. And I go near the base of these big trees. Often here it's oaks or madrones or dug fir. 
and I peel back that top layer of leaf, the undecomposed leaf from just the last season or two, and you get down into that little lower layer of leaf that's starting to break down as it, t- as it turns into the soil. And you're going to see these white strands of mycelium, looks like spider webs racing through that soil. These are, these are large uh, networks of bacteria, microbes, that are breaking down that soil. A lot of these are decomposers. Some are predators that eat the decomposers. You know, the soil food web is a whole, there's a whole uh, f- uh, food, <laughs> there's a whole, uh, there's a whole food chain taking place under that soil. So when we harness the power of these microbes and gather them from the forest, these are billions of workers, you know, and one gram of that leaf mold, there are between two and 10 billion microbes. Um, we can harness their power and we can put them to work. And when I, har- when I harvest these from the forest, from my, my, from my farm here, I know these are, these are microbes that are strong. They're powerful. These are the indigenous microorganisms. They're already thriving here at my elevation and my exposure. And these are, you know, these are the good ones. When you buy one, when you buy a bag of mycorrhiza from the store, we don't know if any of those uh, strands are going to survive here. But we know that the ones we collect locally are already, they're already putting in the work here. These are the strong microbes. So I like to use those microbes to break down my plant material, meaning I put them, put my plant material in a bucket with some water. I throw a handful of that leaf mold in there. And then those microbes go to work over the next couple of weeks, breaking down that plant material. I chop the plant material up into two to four inch pieces. This just gives some more entry, entry points for the microbes to go in and start breaking down that plant matter. Um, when we culture these teas, these anaerobic teas, um, you know, we're not aerating it. We're not heating it. These microbes are surviving and thriving at that ambient temperature. When we make a compost tea and we aerate it and we heat it, yeah, we might be building a lot of biology, but the minute that that temperature changes or those micro, the bubble stops, um, that biology starts, starts dying off quickly. And so compost teas are cool. They're great, but it's a lot, it's a lot of work. It's a, uh, you have, they have to be applied at the right time. These anaerobic ferments just take, um, a lot of the guesswork out. It's very easy. As long as you dilute them at least 30 to one, it's hard to go wrong. Um, you just kind of broke my brain, Joey. I have always <laughs> been a big fan of aerated teas because in my head, like, oh, yeah, we're supercharging them with the oxygen and, um, you know, that's so abundant of life. And then I put it on and everything. But, you know, that's a really good point. As soon as we take them from the bubbler and they're not being, um, you know, in this highly oxygenated environment and they're in the soil, suddenly we've got all of these oxygenated microbes that are in a much less oxygen environment of the soil. I think I just tripped on a fight that I remember participating or watching about five (laughs) years back online about this. And I I think it just, I think I'm just understanding the nature of the fight now. Um, What, what, so who are the guys who are who are these microbes that are in these these anaerobic um um you know fermentations uh, will they survive more effectively than the aerated ones once they've been applied to the soil Yeah these are the tough guys these are the tough guys from up on the hill they've been surviving up here for eons they're not they weren't made in a laboratory <laughs> just, It's uh, int- you know I always think about the um you know 
use the plants that are on your property because we always, you know, through through natural farming, through KNF, we're always talking about collecting and incubating IMO, right? Indigenous microorganisms. That's like, as far as I'm concerned, that's the gold standard for natural farming is is collecting and incubating more of those. And um, because they, we know that they know how to do the work where you live, right? And it just... I apparently am not have not been using the same strategy in my compost tea because like I'm a huge fan of aerated compost teas and I'm not going to say that I'm going to stop using them. But now you've made a case for anaerobic teas, which is really hard to argue with. Um, and like you said, it's it's so much easier. Well, something else we do to get the best of both worlds when i dilute that ferment into my dilution tank i diluted it 30 to 1 or 50 to 1 depending on what my input is i sometimes i will aerate it i will aerate between one to eight hours and that will activate a lot of those microbes and now you're getting the best of both worlds so it usually just depends on what's my feeding schedule like do i have time to aerate this am i just trying to get this watered in and, and bounce um, so, yeah, so with you, eight you, hours of aeration, are you suggesting that the the eight hours of aeration is not enough to <clears throat> degrade the anaerobic microbes, but it also um, excites the aerobic microbes, and so then you've got a blend of aerobic and anaerobic, or are you saying that? adding some of the oxygen actually excites the anaerobics too. Yeah, my understanding is it's going to excite those anaerobics and bring them to life. Hmm. Right on. All right. So so um, so we, we're taking these five-gallon buckets and we're cutting our material down um, and we're going to add, you, you said a handful of this forest duff material that's rich with mycelium and has been breaking down stuff for the, like, the last couple years. Um, since the product that we're going to be using out of this is the water, um, the water component, you know, how much of it is really important. So how much of the five gallon bucket would you fill up with, um, th this found plant material, these, these new shoots, these new greens, these new tops of plants and trees and how much, you know, leaving room for water to what degree? And like, do we want to fill it all the way up with the plants or, no. or, or is that too much? Yeah, with, with your regular type of plant material, I'd fill it at least halfway with plant material. Fill the rest of the container up with water. Um, certain plants, if I know they're going to break down and turn into mush, I fill the container all the way up with plant material. One of the first, one of the first liquid fertilizers I make in the early spring is from the grass that I mow in my garden. I use a lawnmower with a, with a bag. And I do it early in the morning so the grass is all wet. It's covered in the microbes. I bag that up and throw it in a 50-gallon drum, fill that thing all the way up with grass, throw it, fill it with water. I add about a one-gallon pot worth of this leaf mold that I collected in the forest. And then over the first week, that grass will be floating a little bit on the top, so I will stir it a little bit over the first week. Usually after about a week, it's all wet and mushy and started to disintegrate and starting to sink. Um, but if, yeah, if you make a ferment and everything's still floating, just give, just give it some good stirs that first week. Um, if you're making these out of dry materials, like we make, we get, we go to the ocean, we gather mussel shells or oyster shells, we'll crush those up 
for calcium. If you're using dry powders or dry manures to make these, you're going to want to use uh, 10 parts water to one part of that dry material. So if I've got a five gallon bucket, I'm only filling it up about a half gallon's worth. And then I'm filling the rest with water and I'm stirring that input over the first week or two just to make sure all the dry material is getting wet at the bottom. All right. So, so if this process takes, <clears throat> you know, a week or so, it sounds like your, your grass experiment at the beginning of the season, you actually even let sit longer than a week. But if we're letting this stuff sit unaerated for a week, especially the manure example, um, but, but generally plants too, the, it starts doing its magic and you start to see the little bubbles on the top. Be, and so you know that the, like the magic is happening. Um, I normally think that I don't want to put that on my plants because the stuff smells rank often, right? Um, you know, sometimes you'll get a plant like a lemon balm, like particularly smells better than most, but a lot of this stuff does not smell like pleasant. You're taking a plant that is, you know, naturally bitter in many cases, and then you're letting it degrade. And to the point that it's, you know, giving off um, gases and then you smell it and you're like, hell no, I'm not putting this on my plants. <laughs> and it sounds like I, you know, that is that sounds like it's an old myth that I've got in my head and I need to let that go. Well, yeah, these are anaerobic ferments. They are stinky. And that is certainly a lot of people's criticism of them is, ew, they're gross. They're yucky. You get them on your hands and your shoes, it, it does stink. There's no, there's no beating around that bush. Uh, most of these ferments take at least 10 to 14 days for grass or purslane. Um, things like, you know, those oyster shells or um, things like mistletoe might take three months or more to break down. Mm. But yeah, they are stinky the whole way through. Um, but I want you to think back, think back through your ancestors to how we farmed for thousands of years. You know, humans were largely using our own manure for, for farming practices. And, and not that long ago in, in, in Southeast Asia and China, they were, there was a thriving human manure market and, and black market around manure because it was such a valuable source in agriculture. They call it night water. And they would actually build uh, along the rural farming back roads in China, manure, human manure was such a valuable resource that they would build these beautiful outhouses on the side of the road and they would paint them and decorate them elaborately to try to get visit, uh, travelers to stop at their fancy outhouse to, to leave a deposit that you could use in your fields. Wow. This is how valuable human manure was. And so we have, as humans, we have completely removed ourselves from the loop. We want to, we, we all we talk about is closing the loop. Get back in the loop, guys. We take, you know, we take our, our human waste and we put it in our clean drinking water and we turn it into a waste resource that, you know, the, the, this world spends billions of dollars trying to clean and, and treat. And um, I, I would highly encourage everyone to get the book called The Humanure Handbook and really start thinking about how we deal with our waste streams and how we can work these waste streams back into our, uh, our systems you know, human manure composted for two years is is perfectly safe. I've put my hands right in it. I've got a friend who won an Emerald Cup with some human manure grown cannabis. He does not want people to know that, but, he, <laughs> but it's true. Um, so I make a, I use my own urine. I've I've made a urine ferment. Uh, basically, you want to throw a couple inches of leaf mold in the bottom of a bucket, and then fill that thing up over a couple of weeks. I think it took me about two weeks to fill up a five gallon bucket. 
and you let that sit for six months, um, and then you can dilute that at 100 to 1. It's very potent high nitrogen fertilizer. And now I have talked about closing the loop. I am the loop. And at a hundred to one, that that you know, you don't even have to go to a five gallon bucket. You go half a five gallon bucket. That's going to last you many, many seasons, and <clears throat> potentially your neighbors too, if they're going to touch the stuff. I've got more than enough urine ferment to go around. <laughs> I'll send you a bottle. <laughs> so, so let's compare that. Um, let's let's talk with the aerated teas, right? So there. Um, <clears throat> Even though you mostly use unaerated teas uh, because they are they are easy and quick to get to, there are certainly people who are using aerated um, uh, compost teas and other things as well. So let's go back to the example where you know the, a farmer's got their farm and they have done their spring inventory of plants and they're cutting off the the green bits. And they are putting those in five gallon buckets or larger, and they're going to let them uh, sit for, you know, one week to six months, uh, depending on what it is. Um, but, you know, th there's, a, there's probably a place on that same farm for aerated teas as well. What can I use to decide which plant materials I want to aerate and which ones I, I want to not aerate? You know, it's that's going to be up to your context. I mean, I've I've basically completely eliminated compost teas, uh, aerated compost teas from any farming I'm doing. Dude, that's uh, such heresy, dude! I can't even <laughs> believe I'm hearing you say that. <laughs> well, you know, you got to look at where did these things come from? Who was pushing them? You know, around here it was certainly the grocery stores pushing them as a safer alternative to your salts. But they really, you know, they wanted to sell you these big, expensive, multi-thousand-dollar brewers. And almost every farm I go to visit, I see one collecting dust on, on, on the, next to the shed. So, you know, farmers are only going to do things if they're easy. We have to make farming accessible for everyone. And that's what I really like about natural farming, Korean natural farming and Jadam, is it, it, it takes away the, uh, it, it just makes it very simple. You know, the creator of, of Korean natural farming, um, Dr. Han Q, uh, Dr. Cho Han Q, he wanted to give the power back to the farmer. You know, the, the, the chemical companies, the fertilizer companies, they want, they want you to think you have to go to the university, you have to be well-educated to understand soil science, to understand what your plants want, and that's just not true. Like I said, our ancestors farmed for, you know, thousands of years without any of these things. Um, if, if we can just mimic, mimic how nature farms, you ever see a compost tea getting aerated in nature? <laughs> I mean, no. where, where would you see that? I mean, so I don't see where it's necessary. And uh, in my context, these anaerobic teas, just they make a lot more sense. Yes, they're stinky and gross. Yes, my hands literally stink right now because I applied some this morning. But that's the life, man. Stinky hand life. Stinky hand life. So um, with these different... Um, with these different inputs, you know, there's a lot, there's a big range in how long they will sit in the bucket, right? You've got, you've got some of these that you said that, you know, you just go a week and then there's some that have got like, you know, tougher skins and they take more time to pull out like the, um, like the horsetail. And then for more like, like solid things like the, um, like the oyster shells and such, you know, you were saying six months. Um, how does a person, no, 
how long they should let this anaerobic tea sit before it's reached maximum quality. Um, and is there, is there ever a too long? Well, first off, let me, uh, let me make it clear by saying these anaerobic ferments that I'm describing right now are what we call Jadam liquid fertilizers. I would encourage everyone to get the Jadam uh, ultra-low-cost organic agriculture book. It was uh, written by the son of, of Master Cho, created Korean Natural Farming. His son, Young Sang Cho, uh, wanted to make it so Korean Natural Farming could be done on a larger scale. And, that, and that's how he was able to simplify everything using this leaf mold and water. Um, so some of the, some of the things I love about making these ferments is they don't go bad. They get better with age. You never, ha and you never have to empty the container out or clean it. Unlike a compost tea brewer. Anybody who's ever climbed in a compost tea brewer knows that nightmare. That's what I'm doing when we're done with this interview, brother. I got to do that today. Don't do it. <laughs> throw, throw that thing in the, put that thing on Craigslist. Um, so yeah, uh. God, I lost my train of thought. I was thinking about. Oh, I asked you how 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 long <laughs> do we let these? How do we know how long to let these anaerobic okay, uh, yes. ferments sit? So normally that liquid will get dark, and I'm and I've got ferments that are a year old right now that are black. That blackberry one I made, that liquid is dark, and they just get better with age. The darker they get, the better. So yeah, soft you know soft plants like the purslane, the grass, even the horsetail, those are all ready to use in two weeks. And so when I use up all that material, all that liquid, I never empty out the container. I just fill it back up with more horsetail, another handful of leaf mold and some water, throw the lid on it, leave it in the sun right in the middle of my garden. You never clean out that material. You just keep adding to it. So that's one of the things I love about these Jadam liquid fertilizers. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you're going to want to wait till the, till the liquid gets really, you know, gets dark. That's how you know it's ready. Soft, soft stuff, usually two weeks, you know, harder stuff up to three to three to six months. Some of the manures, they say six months. Wow. All right. So is there, is there such thing as a, as a book that suggests, um, how long to let these things sit or is it really simply the darkness? Cause that, this seems too simple, right? Um, <laughs> it, it, it seems like there has to be more than that. Well, the big concern is that you're going to burn something. And with these, you always dilute them at least 20 to 30 times. So, you know, what the concern is, you're, you know, maybe it wasn't as powerful as, as you hoped it would have been, but you're not going to burn anything, which is the biggest concern. But I would recommend everybody do a test first. Water one little area, foliar one little area. Don't do the whole thing. Start with 10% of the crop. Don't, don't hit me up later saying you killed everything. <laughs> hit me up later and say you killed 10% of your crop. <laughs> All right. So, so let's talk more about, um, <clears throat> uh, indigenous microbes. And so, um, you know, if, for most natural farming systems, um, you know, your, your local microbes that you were suggesting earlier, like we know they can handle the heat. We know they can handle the seasonal dryness. We know that they know how to do the work here locally. Um, you know, for most of us collecting IMO using the Korean natural farming technique is the way that, that, you know, is probably most popular. Um, it's one of the reasons why I tell people to use your local, uh, plants because they're already populated on the outside with your local microbes. 
Um, uh, do you have any other suggestions for for either uh, collecting um, IMO to bring it to your property or ways to incubate them like we do in the IMO stages of Korean natural farming to, you know, give the indigenous microorganisms the the best step up we can. Yeah. Well, in Korean natural farming, yes, you've got this IMO, indigenous microorganism process, uh, about about different steps. You get to IMO eight or nine, but the most common are five steps. Uh, The first being putting cooked grains, cooked rice in, in a cedar box or in a bamboo basket out in the forest where these microbes are present. And you're going to capture, they're going to grow on that rice. You're going to capture those microbes over about a week's time, depending on the temperature. Um, it's a tricky process. I probably had eight or nine failures before I started getting some good captures. At my old farm, uh, there's a lot of wildlife and I had issues with animals getting into it, get to eat the rice, uh, rain, getting it rained on. I finally had a good capture when I put a, a, I filled a wheelbarrow full of leaf mold and all this basically brought the forest to my back porch of my cabin and put the wheelbarrow right on the back porch where I knew the animals wouldn't come and I put my collection box right in that pile of leaf mold and was able to get a good collection right there so that's that's once you've got that collection of those indigenous microorganisms on that rice you mix it equal weights brown sugar and that just holds it in stasis you can store it long term now you've got your microbes your imo2 collection that's called and then the next the next steps three through nine are growing that on on um on different types of medium, we use rolled oats or crimped oats and bran and uh, and wood chips. Twenty five percent oats, twenty five percent bran, and about fifty percent wood chips. And then we make a solution using that IMO for ga- you know some gallons of water, some different inputs. We use um, uh, humic acid. We use uh, we use um, brown rice vinegar we use a little seawater which is high in minerals has 93 minerals and so then you wet this you wet those you wet that medium down and you can basically grow these microbes they'll inoculate it and grow it into a big pile over a week and then you can double the size of that pile by mixing it with uh soil from your land and it's a it's a long process it could take six seven eight weeks i've got an imo4 pile and imo5 pile going right now at at, at different farms i'm i'm uh, consulting on right now so in korean natural farming they say that imo process is 80 percent of korean natural farming it is the most important thing to have this biologically rich soil and, and that once you get to that IMO4 process, you would basically put a light dusting of it on your soil. That's how much you need to apply. I'm not talking a quarter inch. I'm not talking a 16 inch. I'm talking a light dusting is enough to put this, you know, super powerful workers into your soil. And when we have biologically rich soil, microbial rich soil, we're going to use less water. We're going to use less fertilizer. They've actually run tests where they found that these biologically rich soils if you over fertilize them that your yields will actually go down so you might find that once your soil is biologically rich you can feed way less than you used to as well as uh, water less so this is very important and as i mentioned before uh the creator of jadam master cho's son wanted to make this into an easier process that could be done on a larger scale so we have an input we call jms jadam microbial solution And instead of capturing these microbes on some rice over a week, we can grow them in a bucket of water 
the microbes on a handful of leaf mold and we grow them on some smushed up mashed potatoes. We put a handful of boiled potatoes, we mush them up into this water with a little bit of our leaf mold and over, it, it can happen in two days in really hot conditions or uh, over a week in cold conditions, you're going to get microbial growth in this, in this essentially, um, in this solution. And so you're going to see this, it's going to start making very tiny bubbles. These are the microbes and it's going to turn into a foam on the top of that, on the top of that bucket. And when that foam is at its most vigorous peak, that's when you've got the biggest growth. You've got about a 12 hour window to use this. So you can either dilute it and, 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 um, soil drench with it or foliar feed with it. Um, or you can, you can jump back into that IMO process and for long-term storage, you can use that, that JMS solution as the input solution to make your IMO three. So you could take your bran and your oats and your wood chips. And instead of making that liquid solution with the IMO two and all those other inputs, you can just use your JMS to inoculate that pile and kind of skip ahead of that IMO one and two process that can be a little tricky. So, so through this, during the second set, we've essentially found two different ways to supercharge the property without spending money on, on the store bought stuff. On one hand, we want to, um, gather the plants that we know already succeed on our farm to the point of being a pest, these plants. And then also doing what we can to to capture and incubate our local organisms. Um, so dur- during the next set, we're going to talk about you know keeping things away. We're going to talk about about pest discouragement. But it really sounds like you know if you're taking these two um, these two inputs, the, the the plants that we find on the property and the microbes we find on the property. All we're trying to do is to caretake the living things in our property and that we find the most beneficial and incubate them and help them along. It actually makes it sound a lot more simple than most people think about fertilizer. Well, it comes back to mimicking these systems that we see in nature, you know, microbes in the soil, deep layers of mulch. Um, you know, the, these are just the patterns that we've already see existing and thriving. And, and if, you know, why would we try to do anything else? You know, the more, the more I get into natural farming, the more I find that the, the, the core of natural farming is unlearning what I've already been taught. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One thing I want to say, I want to bounce back to the liquid fertilizers real quick. Um, it's, it's important that people think of, uh, of their plant as having three, Three, three different stages of its life. In, in Korean natural farming and Jadam, we, we talk about the plant having three stages. Let's look at the cannabis plant. We talk about its vegetative stage. This is the, the high, you know, vegetative growing early in the season. We look at its transition phase. This is when it's starting to flower or starting to fruit. And then you've got your flowering and fruiting stage. This is when it's budding. It's fully, fully budding. So you've got these three stages. And then we want to make these foods from plants during these stages to feed at those stages. 
So let's just take that. Let's stick with that cannabis plant because I know that's what a lot of your listeners are growing. We make our high nitrogen vegetative teas for our cannabis from our vegetative cannabis plants. We'll, um, we'll, you know, excess plants, or if you've got some males you want to kill, or if you've got some plants where you need to clean out the inside of them. I talked before about good airflow. You want to cut out those inner shoots, those little branches, those leaves. We use those, those, those green leafy shoots to make our high nitrogen vegetative teas. And then when that plant's going into bud and you've got those tiny little buds on the inside of that plant and the bottom of those branches, clean out those little buds. Once again, improving that airflow, getting the plant to focus its energy on the buds that are getting hit by the sun and going to get big and produce. And now you've got a ferment that you can make uh, into your transition tea. And you're going to feed this during transition. I grow some auto flowers here, so I always make sure I harvest a few of those early in the year so that I'll have some transition teas before my full terms are, are going into that transition time. Usually here in Humboldt, that's around third week of July. Around July 20th, we'll start feeding those um, transition teas. And then you want to make your flower tea out of some ripe bud. So same thing, I'll use some of my autoflowers. If I've got a messed up plant or two or something that doesn't look right, I'll make my ferment out of that ripe, terpy bud and feed that during flowering. And so same thing, we make these flower ferments out of plants that are high in phosphorus. This could be your pumpkin. This could be your zucchini. You know those giant zucchinis you're always sneaking in your friend's car when they come over to your house? Yeah. You're just giving away your fertility, man. That You should be feeding that to your ganja. Um, so yeah, knowing those plants, figuring out, uh, what they're, what nutrients they're high in, what are their mineral, mineral makeups and making those plants, uh, into ferments and feeding them to the plant at the correct time in its life cycle. Fabulous. Well, thank you for that, Joey. So let's go ahead and take our second short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire and my guest today is regenerative cannabis consultant, Joey Berger. As cannabis regulations become more demanding and consumers become more educated, it is increasingly important to avoid the use of chemical pesticides when cultivating cannabis. Beneficial insects have been used for decades by the greenhouse vegetable and ornamental plant industry, and today many cannabis cultivators are moving from sprays and chemicals to beneficial insects. Copert Biological Systems has the beneficial insects, mites, and nematodes, microbials, sticky cards, and air distribution units you need to partner with nature to defend your garden. Whether you manage acres of canopy or have a simple grow tent in your home, Copert is ready to help answer your questions and help you transition away from chemical sprays towards clean and natural solutions. Since 1967, Copert has assisted growers in identifying pests and devising reliable solutions while providing healthy insects and mites that will protect your yield. Since the 1990s, Copert has been a leader in cannabis pest and disease control worldwide and have highly trained consultants to assist you in Canada and the U.S. from coast to coast. No matter where you live, Copert Biological Systems can help. Visit copert.com, choose your country, and get detailed information. That's copert, K-O-P-P-E-R-T.com. For the most up-to-date cannabis-related biological control information, you can also check out their Instagram, at Copert Canada. You know getting away from pesticides is good for health and good for business, and Copert is ready to help. Visit copert.com today. 
This message is for folks who grow cannabis. I'm talking to home growers, patients, and commercial growers too. I'm probably talking to you. When you plan out your next growing cycle, be sure to check out Humboldt CSI Seeds at HumboldtCSI.com. Caleb Inspecta and his family have lived in Humboldt County for over 100 years. For the last 40 years, three generations of his family have cultivated extraordinary Sensamia cannabis in Humboldt, Mendocino, and Trinity Counties. Because of his lineage and the hard-earned experience that comes from growing up smoking and sifting large populations of cannabis plants in Northern California, the seeds you'll cop from CSI will be winning genetics based on longtime heavy hitters and updated and re-sifted to bring out new and exotic traits and better yields. Go ahead and ask around. Caleb, also known as Inspecta and Pirates of the Emerald Triangle, is a breeder's breeder. He reaches way back and works with significant strains, recreating them in new and interesting ways that you'll love as a toker and a grower, as well as offering you some surprises that will delight serious seed traders and cultivators. Humboldt CSI goes a further step and selfs all these chemovars so you know all the seeds will be female. These are not experimental feminized seeds. Humboldt CSI releases some of the best female seeds available anywhere and it will show in your garden. Folks grew quite a bit of CSI Humboldt Genex last year here on Vashon Island, and everyone was pleased. The patients had beautiful female plants and didn't have to cull half of their garden as males. The folks growing for the fun of getting high grew colorful flowers with exceptional bag appeal and great highs. And breeders had seven out of seven females in a pack, which gave them a lot of phenotypic choices. Take a moment right now and visit HumboldtCSI.com. You'll find an up-to-date menu of both feminized and regular lines along with photos and descriptions. That's HumboldtCSI.com. For 20 years, Humboldt Seed Company has been family-owned and providing reliable, high-yielding seeds originating in Northern California. While the current trend is to slap one super male into a line of hype strains, Humboldt Seed Company continues to breed with precision and care by doing large sifts and back crosses to emphasize the absolute best traits that a line has to offer. This kind of breeding takes time, talent, and space to work. No matter what kind of aroma you are particularly into, Humboldt Seed will likely have something you'll love. If you love fruit, you can choose from banana, mango, apricot, papaya, blueberry, blood orange, melon, and lemons across their various strains. They have all gas, glue, and classic sour diesel lines as well. Of course, there are the Heritage California strains like OG Kush, Jack Hare, and Headband, and their award-winning Blueberry Muffin is one that delights just about everybody's palate, especially when concentrated. Humboldt Seed Company is proud to bring to market the infamous Freak Show Cultivar 2, which has a great THC high, but looks so much like a fern that some folks can't even identify it as cannabis. It's a plant that really needs to be seen to be believed. If you're looking for well-balanced CBD seeds, Humboldt Seed Company can turn you on to CBD strains that actually have flavor, like the dill and pepper terpenes of Willie G's Lebanese Land Race. Whether you are looking for regular, feminized, or autoflowers, Humboldt Seed Company has the gear to make this your best growing cycle ever. Visit HumboldtSeedCompany.com today to check out their line of vigorous genetics, download their catalog, and find out where you can pick them up. You can also check out their Instagram at The Humboldt Seed Company to check out their gorgeous flowers and the extraordinary freak show plant.
Humboldt Seed Company. Let them know Shango sent you. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is regenerative cannabis consultant, Joey Berger. So during the last set, we were talking about how to capture nutrition and beneficial microbes on our property, um, incubate them, make them even more of themselves, and then use them as fertilizers, um, thus causing our plants to thrive and saving a whole bunch of money. We're going to take, let's take that same approach and talk about um, pesticides. And for the, for the sake of this conversation, we're going to use the word pesticide for both things that may kill pests and probably more what we're going to talk about, things that discourage pests. So, Joey, let's start us out with the kinds of plants we're looking for, just like the kinds of plants that we're looking for when we're trying to wildcraft nutrition. I'm just going to guess that we're going to be looking for whatever our local bitter and caustic plants are. Is that a good place to start? Yeah, definitely. Um, the best place to start is walking around your yard and looking at what plants don't have pests on them. Oh, looking huh. at what it's usually going to be your aromatic plants it's usually going to be plants that are high in uh, essential oils and have you know thick herbal aromas um you know like a ras like a rosemary or a lavender oregano these different types of herbs like that um there's a there's a great book on jadam pesticides making natural pesticides called 100 plants for making pesticides um, I've, I've identified over 21 of those plants just growing on this one piece of property here. And I've been making pesticides out of many of those, combining them and making them on their own. Um, some of these are good for soft bodies pests. Some of them are also good for, uh, for fighting fungal diseases like powdery mildew. Um, these Jadam these herbal solutions, as they're called, are also beneficial. They act as a beneficial foliar. They're very safe. You don't need to wear protective gear when you spray them, and um, could be sprayed multiple times per day on a on a cool, cloudy day. You don't want to spray them in the sun, but yeah, once you realize there are plants all around you that can repel pests, it's another it's another great tool to have in your toolbox. But it it's not the silver bullet. You're not going to just spray your way out of all your problems. I'm going to talk again about diversity. We're going to go back to that word diversity in your garden. You know, when you have a monocrop, you, you've got sitting ducks there. You know, in, in nature, it's part of the natural system for a plant to attract bugs. This is how they help spread their seeds and how they propagate. The bugs will either carry the seed or the bugs will attract birds that will come in and eat the bug and eat the seed and they'll spread it in their manure. So this is all part of nature. We're working against nature when we're trying to keep pests away from our cash crop. So it's, it's, a, tough, it's a tough order, as everybody knows. So when we mimic the systems we see in nature, which means diversity, you don't walk in the forest and see one plant planted in, in, in plastic grow bags. <laughs> you see hundreds of plants growing together, supporting each other, growing side by side, network of roots communicating with each other, sharing nutrients, warning each other of pests uh, or, or other um, pressures coming in. You know, they, they communicate through through these mycelial networks. I know you've had some incredible shows talking about this, Shango. I've really enjoyed them. Um, so what that means is a diverse planting in your garden. As many, as many different types of plants, trees, perennials, annuals, vines, berries, uh, as much diversity as possible. There are seven layers of plants. You've got your tubers. 
You've got your low-growing ground covers. You've got your low herbs, medium herbs. You've got big fruit trees, little fruit trees. You've got vines. You've got seven right there. So you've got all these different tools there that are going to bring in diversity into your garden. Some of these plants are going to be uh, food sources for predator bugs. These are plants we call banker plants. Um, they're going to be food for the predators that come in and eat your pests. You know, when you release the predator bugs in your garden because you've got an outbreak and you, you see you notice them for a day or two and then they all disappear, well, they ate your pests and there's no other food source and they left. But if you can plant these other banker plants around your garden, you're going to have food sources for these plants, uh, for these uh, predators to stick around. The other, the other thing that goes hand in hand with that are trap plants. These are plants that your pests are more attracted to than your, um, than your uh, cash crop. And so we like to plant these around the edge of our garden or at least 8 to 10 feet away from those, uh, those, the cash crop. This is going to draw the aphids and draw the mites and draw the cucumber beetles away. So when you go out in the morning and you're doing your pest scouting, you're going to check all those trap plants as well as the cash crop. And you're going to monitor those levels and you're going to decide where that threshold is of treatment. You know, one cucumber beetle, no big deal. Uh, uh, you know, 50 cucumber beetles on my Blue Hubbard squash, well, now I'm going to spray that squash. I'm not going to spray the cannabis. Cannabis doesn't have any cucumber beetles on it, but I'm going to spray that trap plant. And so, yeah, Blue Hubbard squash is a great plant that I really like to encourage people to grow. Um, it works as a great ground cover. It works as a mulch. It's providing a lot of shade. It's providing a food source. It's that trap plant for the cucumber beetles and um, any kind of squash bugs. And you can make an amazing high phosphorus ferment out of that big old squash. Feed it to your ganja as well as feed it to your family all winter. So really, you know, these pesticides, they need to be part of a balanced program that includes diverse plantings of bankers, trap plants, other pollinators, just diversity, diversity, diversity. You know, when you have a diverse system, if one part of it fails, there's somebody else there to pick up the slack and keep it going. Diversity is strength. This is probably one of the most pleasant solutions anybody's ever given a plant nerd, right? Like, <laughs> you know, we all love plants. We're all bringing home plants all the time, probably more room than we have. And our solution, you know, and the thing we hate is pests, right? And you're saying, hey, the solution to that man is more plants. And I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, yeah. like any, any excuse to bring home more plants. Um, I want to hit on um, something you said earlier. You said that uh, these, these, um, we don't want to spray these uh, during the while there's sun. And is there more to it than just we don't want the water on the plants to burn because they act like little magnifiers? Or is there something about you know the you know the 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 sprays from these high oil plants that we're talking about using as as pest discouragements that is also not to be sprayed during a sunny day it has to do with the eff efficacy of these being sprayed during high humid conditions oh. in korea at the jadam farm they wake up between 4:30 and 5:30 in the morning to to foliar feed and to spray these pesticides this way the plant is covered in that solution that that pesticide as long as possible before it evaporates this means your pests are coated with it uh, there's a better chance you're going to have success this comes back to me saying you know when i teach people these these techniques 
if they don't follow them, uh, they're not going to have as good success. It's hard to get some growers to wake up at between 4.30 and 5.30 in the morning to go spray their garden. Uh, an outdoor grower, you know, we're here in Humboldt County. It's very dry. It's not humid at all. The only time it's humid here is at 4.30 to 5.30 in the morning. So if you kind of, if you really care about your garden and beating them back with these natural processes, you're going to get your butt up early and get out there and spray these while it's humid. And if you got a you know if you got a cloudy day, get out there and spray five times because you can. We had a little uh, heat wave here a couple weeks ago, and I had a little aphid outbreak in my greenhouse. Um, we had three hot days up in the 90s. It was over 100 in my greenhouse, and I had a little aphid outbreak, and I got to test out some of my pesticides. I posted some Instagram videos about it, and um. Yeah, the pests are here. We're going to have to deal with them. And if you've got a, a bunch of different tools in that toolbox, you've got a better chance of, of getting, getting a handle on them. It's, it's helpful to understand that the, the reason uh, that we don't want to spray it in the sun is because the water, the solution evaporates so quickly. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. And it's also interesting because, you know, we've all just lived through a year of uh, COVID stuff. And so, you know, many of us have been using those, uh, hand sanitizers, right? And they say, you know, the, the, it's essentially just alcohol, which is killing the, the microbes and then a sauce that slows down how fast it dries because the, we want it to stay moist on the hands because that means it's active. Similarly, it sounds like we want these, um, you know, we, we want the, the spray to stay as effective on the plant for as long as possible before that it goes ahead and goes ahead and evaporates. <clears throat> and then you double down on it, right? Then you said, eh, you know, on a cloudy day, you might be able to apply it five times a day. And when you said that earlier, I'm like, why would I want to do that? Does that mean this stuff doesn't work? But I was approaching it wrong. You're like, I'm, I'm imagining you're going to say, no, it gives you, if you can supply it five or six times a day, you're spraying it, letting it evaporate, and it leaves some um, helpful residue, and it's still cloudy, so you spray again, and now it's pushing the bugs back again. So it's essentially like you're just hitting the bugs once versus hitting it five or six or times times a day, and then you get the oil buildup on the plant. So you know a cloudy day gives you a lot of opportunity to you know trick out your plant with all these defense mechanisms. Yeah, and, and I also mentioned earlier, these are also beneficial foliar sprays. So you're actually feeding your plant beneficials at the same time. So spraying them five times in one day would only be beneficial for your plant. <clears throat> are there any plants, or, or maybe like a variety of plants, that <clears throat> we don't want to be spraying? Because it seems to be like from the last set, you're all like, yeah, whatever you got on your property... Um, except for probably poison oak, um, you know, go ahead and and do an anaerobic ferment of that stuff and put it on your plants. So long as it's the new season green stuff that's filled with growing hormones, you're probably going to be dialed. And now here in the on, on, on during third set, you're all like, hey man, you know, all of these these plants, uh, the, the the rosemary, the 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 you know oregano, garlic, things like that. Put those on it as well. You're essentially just saying take all your plants and put it on your cannabis, and it's it's just going to suit them up. That sounds like it might be overly simplified, but it really does seem to be our point. Well, that's somewhat simplifying it. I mean, I I do a lot of testing. 
you know, I, I don't do anything willy-nilly. If I'm messing with a new plant that's unproven to me, I test it out. I test it on one plant. I, I, I let it, I feed a few, one plant a few times with it before I would feed anything else. So, you know, you can, there's plenty of plants that are well known in our, in our cannabis community as being beneficial. And I would seek those out first before you start, you know, messing with any unknowns. Right on. I guess my, my idea in approaching it like that was just simply people who don't live on the West Coast like you and I do, and, and they've got different plants than we do. Sure. So I guess it would be, you know, do an inventory for your farm and then look them up. And if you don't happen to have any plants that are, you know, historically used as fertilizers, well, then maybe you, maybe you want to plant it. Though I find it like bo- mind boggling that anyone would have to plant horsetail, but it's because I've lived on the West Coast, right? And so horsetail has always been ubiquitous. Yeah. Well, I'm on the east side of Southern Humboldt, a little farther from the coast, and we don't have a lot of it growing here. We're pretty far inland. We have it growing on one dam of a gray water pond that we have where it really stays wet all year. So we only have it in one site. So um, yeah, I want to encourage people get get familiar with the plants in your area. And you know, a lot of what we're talking about here is very much, uh, you know, not everybody has access to the to, to to land to plants. A lot of people are in the cities. A lot of people are in third world countries. Um, you know, we take a lot of this for granted that we have that we have these things. I want to give a little pointer on how to make pesticide out of something that pretty much everybody in any third world country will be able to get and have access to in a pinch. You know, you can make. Um, these herbal solutions, these pesticides out of tobacco. If you only have access to cigarette butts, you can make this pesticide. I'm talking every third world country. We know this, this, this tobacco thing has infiltrated every corner of the globe. So you can make it out of collecting those cigarette butts, boiling them for five hours, and dilute that solution 30 to 1, and you got a pesticide that you can use, make anywhere in the world pr- practically. You know, that was, <clears throat> that was my very first um, introduction to anything natural in the garden. When I was a kid, you know, I lived in Detroit. My dad um, had a farm, or not a farm, he had a little garden plot in, in the backyard. And uh, I remember my dad, um, I saw him peeing into a, uh, a mason jar. And I'm like, the hell, dad? You know, and, 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 and he's like, oh, you, remember, you know that tobacco I've been soaking? I'm like, yeah. And, and, uh, cause I remember he, he bought tobacco. I'm like, what the hell are you buying tobacco for? And ends up that he was, he, he used this tobacco soaked, added with the urine and then put it in a sprayer bottle and, and sprayed. And, and I, you know, I thought it was like some kind of bizarre sorcery, right? And it isn't until you mention it now that I'm like, oh my God, all about, all the way back when I was a kid, my dad was rocking this stuff, you know, as you know, it, you know, as as a total novice, right? My, you know, but but he was doing it. You are second generation natural farmer, Shango. <laughs> that's that's great. All right, so 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 once we've identified these plants, we're essentially going to give them the same anaerobic treatment that we talked about in the last set, right? That's essentially is that the same way that we're going to no. prepare these? No, no, it's not. We're going to make to make this pesticide what, what we call the Jadam herbal solution. It's even easier. It's stupid easy. You're going to basically fill up a big pot, or you can make this in your crock pot. 
But if you're filling up a big pot, fill it at least halfway up with plant material, fill the rest up with water, so the water's at least above the plant material. I don't like to go all the way to the top because I don't want it to boil over. But you put a lid on it. This is going to help keep all the essential oils in it while it's, de while it's decocting. And you're going to bring it to a boil. And then once it's boiling, you're going to turn it down to a simmer and let it simmer for at least five hours. And when this is done, you're going to leave that lid on the whole time. That's going to help it from evaporating, and it's going to keep it from uh, from those essential oils escaping. It'll be more potent if you cook it with the uh, with the lid on. So then, when it's uh, when it's ready to jar up, you're basically going to take your jars. It's best to use plastic plastic heat proof bottles. You're going to fill them up while the while the decoction is still hot off the stove. Put the cap on it and turn that bottle on its side, and that's going to help sterilize the bottle. And, and you'll know if you had a failure in your sterilization because over the next few days, that bottle will, that plastic bottle will inflate. Like when you leave a plastic water bottle in the car and it heats up and it inflates. That means there was some problem with the sterilization. That batch went wrong. Those microbes are killing themselves. Throw that one out and try again. But if this stuff survives, if your bottle didn't inflate, you've got a potent jodomerable solution there that you can dilute 30 to 1. You want to use it up within one to two days of opening that container. It goes bad. This is why I tend to make it in smaller containers that I know I'll use up in a day or two. Four ounces will make a gallon. And, uh, yeah, that's your Jadam Herbal Solution. I, I make these out of single herbs, but lately I've been starting to combine herbs. I just made one that was um, uh, pennyroyal mint, um, rosemary, and oregano. And I just made one that was wormwood. St. John's wort and the oleander. You know, the oleander is a plant that is used in landscaping all over. It's probably planted all over your nearest town. It's toxic to people and animals, but it makes a great pesticide. You can use the leaves, the stems, the branches. Just wear gloves because you don't want to get that, that um, liquid on any cuts and into, your, into your bloodstream. It's very toxic, but they'll mess those, mess those plants, uh, mess those pests up bad. Let's uh let let's go into that bottling step a little bit more. So so all right. So so let's say that I'm using rosemary and I have um you know broken up the rosemary and I put it in my pot and I'm leaving like an inch of a lip so I don't boil over and I'm putting the lid on so that I'm keeping as many of the essential you know terps and oils inside of it and um it's still probably making my house smell hella good. Um, so then when I'm done, I'm, um, I'm, I'm guessing that if I want the, the, the jar in, in my example, I'm, I'm, I'm picturing using mason jars versus, uh, the plastic bottles that you used in your example, but I'm assuming that I would want to, I, I would want to filter it to get out the, the plant bits and then pour it into the mason jar while it's still hot and then put on the two-piece lid, and as it cools, it will create a vacuum, and it will suck in my loose lid so that it's airtight. Um, and I would think that that might make it shelf-stable. Is that true? Yeah, that's how I do mine. I jar them up in glass jars because I don't want to buy plastic. Um, and yeah, if it goes bad, that, that, that lid's going to pop up. They'll store for up to a year at room temp, cool, dark room temp. You can also keep them in the fridge, but um, I just store mine at room temp, and I'm using up pesticide I made last summer right now. And they make great gifts. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> so so all right. So so now that now that the the hot stuff is is in the mason jar and it cools down and we hear that magic little dink from the other room and we're like hell yeah we win. <laughs> um, I love that sound when we're canning vegetables and um, all I, I, all that to get to this point here. When we open it and we break the seal, I believe you said that we should use it within like a day or two. And is that because it um, all of the the subtlety is oxidizing and changing? They say the microbes are eating themselves; that they start attacking each other. And I don't know if it's the microbes in the in the in the outer environment that are attacking the microbes in the in the um, solution. But that's that's what I, that's what they teach us in Jadam is that you've got two days to use it up. So this is why I know that on my farm I'm usually spraying in two gallon increments. I've got one garden I'm spraying usually two gallons; the other one I'm spraying two gallons. So I like to make it in eight ounce bottles or sixteen ounce bottles. The eight ounce is going to do my two gallons, you know, or I'll open a 16 ounce. No, I'm going to, no, I'm going to use the other half the next day. Eight ounces in the two gallons. That sounds like it's a lot more of a ratio. What, what are we spraying these at? Uh, 30 to one is the dilution rate. Mm-hmm. Um, you can spray them more concentrated if you use a, like a foam gun, like you'd use to wash your car with that you can, uh, has a little reservoir to hold the um, soap. Yeah. Uh, if you're using some kind of wetting agent and a gun like that, you can spray them at 15 to 1 dilution rate. And these herbal solutions work better with a wetting agent, whether that's a little bit of a dish soap, an ounce per gallon of dish soap, or Dom has a wetting agent that they can that they um, that you can make. It's just a little more uh, a little more time consumptive um, input to make. Actually, let, let's go ahead and talk about that. My buddy, uh, Mindfully Rooted, down uh, San Diego, I think, he sent me a bottle of JWS, right? Oh. Jadam Wedding Solution. And, you know, I I don't, you know, I was grateful for it because getting anything cool like this is cool. But I really only know one use for a wedding agent, um, at, you know, essentially a surfactant, right? Which, as far as I understand, I've only ever used surfactants, which are, are often soaps. When I have got a pest issue, I will spray, you know, whatever whatever solution I'm using for that mixed with a little bit of soap, which helps it stick to the leaf as far as I understand. Um, so, so why don't you talk a little bit about Jadam wetting uh, uh, solution and, and, and maybe, you know, some other uses for it um, other than the obvious? Sure. Well, when we add a wetting agent to that pesticide, it really helps it to stick to the pest. It coats the pest. They get caught up in these bubbles. It just really coats the plant leaf surface. So it gives a lot more uh, efficacy to that um, spray. How much? How much? If, if, if we're doing 30 to 1 with these, these pesticides, how much of the JWS do we want to add in there too? Probably an ounce a gallon. I, uh-huh. I think they call for about an ounce a gallon, and um, they're probably calling that JWS because it's their own product. But if it's if it's traditionally the the Jadam input, we call it Jadam wetting agent, a JWA, and the and the JWA on its own is a very powerful pesticide. I would suggest you try using that at, as a standalone pesticide, because I bet you'd be surprised at the results you get. Um, you know, they recommend using it on its own, but also mixing it with any Jadam herbal solutions or other pesticides as a wetting agent. 
All right, I follow that. And you know what? It's entirely possible that he wrote JWA on it, and now I'm just saying it JWS. So I don't <laughs> no want to. I don't want to put that on him. So no, no worries. That's, <laughs> that's awesome. He's making these inputs and providing them for people. All right. So, um, so we understand how what plants we want to source from our farm. We understand that we're going to boil them instead of just letting them sit outside in the sun. We understand that we can bottle them up to use them ourselves and to give them as gifts. That's all great as well. Um, what besides sprays? What other things can we do to discourage uh, pests on the property? For example, um, you said earlier we don't want to use the the weed whacker as much because it discourages beetles, right? Which are our allies. Are there um, things that we can do on our property to discourage pests that are more physical, like that, that are not sprays? Well, I want to bounce back really quick to the pesticides and just mention one more thing. Mm-hmm. There's a way to make these pesticides that's even easier, and it works for the most aromatic of these herbs because sometimes when you boil them, you'll lose some of the aromatic effects. So plants like lavender and even the rosemary, they recommend put that in a five-gallon bucket, cut it up, fill it with water, cover it with the lid. No leaf mold like when we're making the fertilizer, just water and plant material, and let that sit for two to four weeks and then you, and then that's your herbal solution. It's essentially a cold, uh, cold extract. And um, same thing, diluted at thirty to one. So there are even easier ways to make this. It's just a little more time consuming. I just wanted to mention that before we moved on. Right on, that's good. And while I'm mentioning things before we moved on, uh, my buddy Johnny, m- mindfully rooted, he did. It does say JWA. Okay, I'm, great, I, I'm the one who added the S, so I don't, I don't <laughs> good, want to throw job, Johnny, Johnny under the bus. <laughs> no, good job, Johnny. <laughs> all right, great. So, so easy is good. So, um, all right. So, so back to the other question, which was: Are there any physical things that we can do uh, to discourage pests on the property, other than just uh, spraying these these uh, discouragements? You know, there's a lot of things we can do that are just going to improve plant health. And when you have a healthy plant, it's not attracting pests. You know, when the, when that plant gets sick, it starts fermenting and exuding these sugars that are going to attract pests. So when you've got healthy plants, they're, they're not sending a message, come, come break me down. I'm at the end of my life cycle. I'm food. I'm, they're just doing their thing. So I talked earlier about the wind breaks and identifying wind sectors. And we're in some windy areas up here with uh, with the can- with a lot of these licensed cannabis farms. They made a lot of these farmers move their grows away from the creeks and the riparian areas and the wet areas along the streams, which meant a lot of people had to get moved up onto ridgetops um, where there was no water, no streams. And this put a lot of people in some really windy conditions that they were not used to. And when you have a plant that's just being wind whipped all day, it's not transpiring. It's not doing its normal functions. Um, it's not a healthy plant, and it is going to be crying out for being put out of its misery, basically. So that's something I really encourage people is let's how do we cut down on the wind in your grow? You want good airflow. Good airflow is very different than your grows on a ridge and it being pounded by <laughs> wind all day. So, you know... High winds, it's bad for your soil. It's drying out your soil. I see a lot of people in plastic grow bags and these fabric pots, which, you know, soil temperatures reach up into the 140s. There's no biology living in your soil at that point. Your plant is just trying to survive. It's not even growing. 
a lot of people would do better around here with a little shade in their gardens with with some with some tree cover in their gardens or even growing under some shade cloth to get these temperatures down a little bit because once your plants in <clears throat> in those temps it's just trying to survive it's no longer growing <clears throat> I remember I was up uh, enjoying a tour up at uh, Lady Sativa uh, over near Benbow, and they find themselves on the top of a mountain ridge. And I learned a lot about slowing down water leaving the property because, of course, they're at the top of a mountain. So that's you know a huge problem of theirs. All of their water wants to run downhill. But also, you're right. The wind is just like ruthless uh, up there, and it's... Um, you know the views are great, but the 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 farming can be challenging. And it comes back to your context. If you're up on top of a windy ridge, maybe throwing a bunch of greenhouses up isn't the best move. You know, maybe uh, that th- that you're going to lose your covers every winter. You know, isn't the best move. You know, let's 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 make uh, structures that are site appropriate and uh, cultivation that's site appropriate. Mm-hmm. Actually, in the site appropriate part, when when we did, and, and anybody who's interested in this, there's a there's a uh, a video I did um, about this on the YouTube channel. But they one of the things they do get is a lot of hella hot sun, and so they actually built this garden that was all uh, heavy rocks that they were pulling out of the other parts of the farm and they made like this uh you know more than a semicircle let's say you know 280 degrees of a full circle and so during the day they were uh these 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 rocks were getting really hot and so that's where they were growing their longest term sativas so that they could you know kind of use it as a heat sink probably not a heat sink but a heat gathering device and so that these these particular sativa plants were uh, being able to grow longer and i i think that's a really a novel use of you know building your growing space for your unique parcel yeah that comes back to that permaculture principle of capture and store energy and i know rio the owner of lady sativa farm i've spent a lot of time up there i actually did their dragonfly earth medicine certification for their farm and i know rio is a longtime permaculture practitioner so to yeah to hear that he's got design in there where he's capturing that heat and that sun that's hitting his property and it's not just hitting the dirt he's capturing it in those rocks so you can release that heat at night and on the cold days I mean, that is just, you know, capturing a resource that's already there. It's genius. Yeah, totally. Shout out to Rio. That was a really great tour. And, um, you know, a lot of people just want to show you the flowers and we're like, ooh, you know, <laughs> weed's great. It, like, I totally felt like I got a, a um, an education in water sequestration just hanging out with him. He's a he's a good teacher. He 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 gets it. So absolutely. All right. So um, uh, let's let's hit on variety before we wrap this party up. So, um, you know, when we were talking about the wild crafting nutrition, you kept on bringing home the the variety of the nutrition and the variety of the plants we're going to be pulling from. And, and can, you know, we want to use the diversity on our farm to help us. Is this also the case when it comes to discouraging pests? I'm assuming we want to put as many different types of fragrant oils on our plants as possible because there's that many different pests 
Well, yeah, and, and with the Jadam Herbal Solutions, it's recommended to alternate them. As we've seen with these pests, you've got one product and you split, spray it for a round or two, you might be able to hold the pests off, but by round three, they've built up resilience. And we've seen this oh. here in the Emerald Triangle for decades where spider mites built up resistance and then you had the russet mites come along and now you've got aphids and and these 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 bugs know how to evolve. They're smart. They are, they've been around a lot, just as long as us, if not longer, and have survived through some pretty gnarly stuff. So, yeah, it's all about having as much diversity on that farm as possible and to hit them with as many different tools as possible. So I like to make sure I always have it th- at least three different Jadam herbal solutions made at all times that I can alternate. On a cloudy day, I'm spraying one in the morning, I'm spraying a different one in the evening, and the next morning I'm spraying that third one. And I'm making sure that at least one of those is also good for powdery mildew. Um, So yeah, diversity, changing it up, uh, having lots of plants in there. If you walked in my garden right now, you'd see a lot of areas where I'm just letting all the weeds go to flower. I'm letting all the thistles go to flower. There's tons of stuff that most people would have just weed whipped. I'm letting it all go to flower, and I've got tons of pollinators um, just naturally doing their processes in my garden and I'm not dealing with any, any unbalanced outbreaks because everything is just uh, well balanced. And it's really is really beautiful to see all of these, you know, flowers that would be, you know, invasives or pests or just annoying to people when you look at them as weeds. But after you get over that emotionally, it's really nice to see all of these, you know, even dandelions, you know, are totally beautiful. And like, you know, they, they totally have got, they need better PR, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, so let's, let's end the show with this. You know, um, one of the reasons that I originally um, started following you, Joey, and really enjoyed, um, you know, your teaching online is that, um, you know, I really think that you get the the heart of all of this, right? This, this, you know, working within the system in ways that are beneficial to the system and to all the life forms that live in the biological system, you know, and, and I like to at least think that, you know, Unless a parcel is particularly destroyed from like, you know, industrial presence or something. I like the idea that, that, you know, wherever the farmer's parcel is, their unique holistic biome, the wholeness of their biome has everything growing in it that could bring their property back into balance and, and dissuade the pests from the plants that they don't want them on to allow them to be on plants that they do want them on. And, um, I'd just like to hear you speak to that, to the idea of the wholeness of a farmer's biome to, you know, as much of that is that uh, that you agree with yeah well it, it really just comes back to mimicking nature when we mimic what we see in nature uh we tap into that divine intelligence that is you know just been been present for 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 eons and uh when we work against that we're, we're swimming upstream we're paddling upstream so if you want to make your garden easier if you want to uh harness the powers of nature You've got to build these systems that, uh, that, that mimic those processes. So I would just hope that people would take as much interest in these other plants, these other allies, as we do in cannabis. I would hope that this uh, cannabis would be the gateway drug into getting people to care more about their food and what they're putting in their bodies and, um, 
and, and natural farming, permaculture, Jadam, KNF. These are all tools that can can help us get closer to nature. And, and um, yeah, it's just been really exciting to see this uh, regenerative farming movement and the excitement in the industry. And, and for me to see these old timers that have, you know, grown the way the grocery store told them for a long time to embrace this stuff and say, oh, man, this is how we grew in the 70s before there was a grocery store. We would gather up leaves out of the woods and throw it, mix it into our soil. And those old hippies knew about that stuff. And, um, and when we start growing cannabis, that the microbes came from my land and the plants that fed it came from my land and the bugs that protected it came from my land. I mean, you want to talk about a, an appellation and a product that is unique to its, uh, to its origination, to its source. There's nothing more unique than that product. There's nobody else that can reproduce that product. That's unique to your biome, to your property, to your farm, to your experience. So I would just want to encourage people to keep exploring that, that relationship to the plant, to nature, to all these plants. And, uh, you know, we have a biome. We are our own little planet, our own little, uh, universe. You know, they're discovering that these, that these microbes are in between the spaces in between our DNA in between our DNA molecules. So we are actually more made up of microbes than we are of ourselves. So just as we have to take care of and treat those microbes in the soil and feed them healthy things and not poisons, we have to think of our bodies the same way and put healthy things into our bodies, substances and food, nutrient-dense foods. Because uh, when these microbes are happy, we're happy. Our soil's happy. Our plants are happy. When these microbes are unhappy because we're feeding them crap, we're feeding our soil crap, we're feeding our bodies crap, our mood turns to crap, our health deteriorates, the, 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 the pests and the diseases and the parasites move in and they break it down. And um, so the sooner we realize we are the same as nature, we are the same as, as the soil and we're all one and we can start, uh, you know, respecting our bodies, respecting this earth uh, equally, um, I think we can get in tune with nature and, and be a lot happier and healthier and hopefully leave something behind for our children, grandchildren, and seven generations that'll uh, be, a, be a, a beautiful place for them to live and, and carry this on. Fabulous. Here, here. Well, Joey, thank you so much for sharing your heart and your passion and your experience with us. Um, I clearly had my mind blown a few times today and, uh, and have, have gotten new paths that I want to take. And I'm sure that I am not the only one. So, so thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you again when I'm, when I'm down your way next. Thank you so much, Shango. Really enjoyed it. So if you want to follow more and hear more from Joey Berger, um, the best way to do that, that's easy, is you can go on Instagram and follow Joey at The Humboldt Local. And I got to tell you, it is a especially good uh, Instagram feed. Uh, not only does he you know, uh, share with you pictures of plants, which we all love, but he's very active as uh, teaching through his Instagram. And so it's it's like being a part of a of a slow burn class or something. I very much like it. So so that's Joey at the Humble Local on Instagram. Um, second thing is, is, uh, the books that Joey mentioned, um, uh, the Jadam books, uh, there are links to those books 
on the Shaping Fire website on the page uh, for this episode. So uh, get easy links for them there. Um, I also want to plug episode Shaping Fire episode 63 with uh, Suzanne the Bug Lady um, that we did entirely about trap and banker plants. So uh, if you were intrigued by the trap, trap and banker plants ideas that Joey was teaching, um, you can you can hear a whole uh, hour and 20 minutes of that from uh, Suzanne. And then also, if you are, you know, if you're in the in the California area, or if you are open to a road trip or a flight, I really encourage you to attend one of uh, Joey's classes that he hosts there at uh, Heartwood Hub, the property that he's been, was talking about in most of his examples today. It is a um, it's a, a permaculture um, a demonstration property that he lives on, and uh, they're also doing classes there again now that COVID's um, over and. Um, the first of their classes was last weekend was a huge success. So uh, um, all of those things and more um, you can find links uh, to on the uh, shapingfire.com website for this episode. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.